From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, November 12th. I'm back from Glasgow, and I'm joined by our roundtable regulars to sort out what was accomplished and what was not, and to find out what the latest inflation numbers mean for Impact investors. Imogen Rose-Smith is an Impact Alpha contributing editor. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. Good to have you back. And David Bank is Impact Alpha's editor and CEO. Hi, David. Hey, great to see both of you. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. Negotiators are pushing the deadlines as COP26 comes to a close. Among the late-breaking issues are rules for a global carbon market, so-called Article 6 of the Paris Climate Agreement. The goal is to make carbon offsets and allowances tradable across geographies, also drive financing for climate mitigation projects, and set a de facto global price on carbon. Technology is disrupting the business of lending to small businesses in emerging markets. There's something like a $5 trillion financing gap for such businesses worldwide. Development finance institutions and commercial banks have viewed small business lending as risky and expensive. So now stepping into the breach are enterprise tech providers, fintech startups, and even cryptocurrency platforms. Join Impact Alpha's Agents of Impact call number 34 on Tuesday, November 16th to learn more. And speaking of small businesses, they contribute up to 70% of greenhouse gas emissions in advanced economies. But fewer than 1 in 10 can actually measure those emissions. In a guest post, Proof of Impact's Evan Vahuni offers four tips that can help small businesses manage their own emissions. Fusion power is so hot right now. Helion Energy raked in a $500 million investment, the largest ever investment for a private fusion venture. Other venture-backed startups, including Commonwealth Fusion and TAE Technologies, are raising war chests to commercialize fusion power. Expectations are rising that the clean energy game changer might be just around the corner, for real this time. In deal news this week, the startup Inspiration secured $200 million from Arclight to help commercial vehicle fleets go electric. Evergreen Coast took a majority stake in the edtech startup Dreambox, TPG's Rise Fund had invested $130 million in Dreambox back in 2018, and they'll retain a minority stake in the company. And finally, Novada, a new platform to help private companies collect and benchmark environmental, social, and governance data, raised $21 million from the Ford Foundation, Omidyar Network, S&P Global, Hamilton Lane, and several other private equity firms. As a reminder, Ford and Omidyar are sponsors of Impact Alpha. Impact Alpha subscribers got all of these stories and more in their email inboxes each day this week. Now it's time for our featured conversation. This week's inflation report in the U.S. and rising oil prices around the world are challenging sustainable investors. For starters, divestment from fossil fuels has become a harder sell while asset inflation has the greatest negative impact on the most vulnerable populations. The need for impact solutions has never been greater, but the new landscape raises a slew of ethical and economic concerns. Imogen, your institutional impact column this week touched on these issues. Can you tell us more? I can, but before I do so, we want to hear more about Glasgow and your experience at COP. How was it? 
Glasgow was amazing. It was a, a beautiful city. I, I wasn't one of the fancy people in the blue zone, which is where all the diplomats and negotiators and official observers were. Uh, but there was plenty of energy and excitement and meetings to be had in the green zone and other areas around the city. Uh, and as I've been saying to folks, Glasgow was full of both your Gretas and your Marks. Uh, those people working within the system and those working without the system. So your Gretas are a reference to Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish climate activist who is trying to agitate uh, from outside the system, urging even more drastic action and more urgent action uh, by the world leaders. Uh, and her catchphrase of world leaders only offering blah, blah, blah was plastered throughout the city. Um, and the, the marks represented by Mark Carney, the former central banker who unveiled uh, a very strong commitment uh, from uh, asset managers representing nearly $130 trillion in assets under management to be aligned to net zero goals by the year 2050. Uh, so you have your Gretas working outside the system, your, your Marks working within the system, uh, and they're all there with a shared goal of how do we avoid the, the worst of climate change and how do we keep global temperature rises to uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius. But I think the, the, third, the third party that's even more crucial uh, weren't there. You didn't have your, your Xi's, your Vladimir's. Uh, you didn't have uh, uh, so many other uh, actors who are uh, kind of critical to achieving uh, global solutions to the climate crisis and the climate emergency. Um, and, and so I think there is a lot of a lot of reasons for hope and optimism out of COP, but also a lot of reasons for serious kind of reflection on on how do we how do we actually make more meaningful progress moving forward. I know this was your your first time on the ground at COP, but did it feel like there was did it feel worth it? Like did it feel like there was sort of a material difference and real change happening, or did it just feel like you know a big junket and a lot of blah blah blah? Um, I mean, you could certainly make a case that there's that there's junket-like aspects to it, and you can certainly make a case that there's a lot of blah blah blah. But I think that's a that's a too cynical uh, case to be made, and, and for my taste, because I, I think you'd have to to take it from the the kind of counterfactual. What happens if there were no cop? Right. What happens if you didn't have uh, so many uh, countries and, and so many different uh, constituencies coming together uh, to try to, uh, to 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 address these these big issues? And I, I think that would be an even you know uh, worse uh, situation. You know that famous line that uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for every other. Uh, it, it's it's kind of like cop cop is uh, uh, the worst kind of climate conference gathering uh, that we could have except for every other. Brian, one of the rays of hope or, or, or supposed positives in this COP um, was the increased focus on private finance. But I don't know whether that's a glass half full, glass half empty thing as well. I mean, there are many folks saying, hey, the money's committed on forests, um, the, some of the some of the methane stuff, maybe even this carbon markets uh, that you mentioned in the in the headlines, you know, that there's um, some momentum on the private side. Does does on the other hand, maybe, you know, they can't even come up with $100 billion for emerging market, you know, climate adaptation and mitigation. So where did you land on the on the on the private finance uh, 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 spectrum? Yeah, I, I do think uh, that the private finance was uh, seemed to me from my vantage point, a, a key emphasis and a key focus of, of this COP. Um, and I think that there is 
um, a lot of reason for hope and optimism around that. But that can't be a substitute for the the more serious and critical government action that needs to be, happen as far as you know, government funding, uh, direct funding from, from especially wealthy countries to help uh, less wealthy countries uh, adapt and be resilient in the face of climate change, but also government regulations. And, and I think ultimately, you know, we need things like a true regulation and a, a price on carbon and, and, and other pieces like that. So I, I think that, that there is a lot of uh, reason to be excited about the, the, the serious financial actors who have come into the conversation are taking this seriously and want to uh, play their, their part. Uh, but again, just from my own personal vantage point, that, that can't, uh, that can't uh, be a, any kind of substitute for the type of action and regulation that can only come uh, from governments. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I, I agree with you. I mean, to me, to, to a certain extent, the sort of the, the focus on the uh, private sector climate finance is, you know, a bit of pun intended, a cop out, right? Like, it's what we do when we know governments aren't able to step up. And I think that, you know, I'm skeptical. I'm, I'm much less excited about Mark Carney's big announcement than you are. Um, I'm skeptical that the pledges are really going to result in real dollars. Um and we know that, like, the markets will act when regulators do so. But, like, relying on the private sector to do the responsible thing is, you know, stupid. I think that the, the, the I mean, at least some faction, and I wouldn't say even it's the majority faction, but at least a significant minority faction in both the corporate world and the finance world is eager to get on with this. And as you say, they're waiting for the leadership from the governmental public side to just give them the sort of starting gun to to really jump in, you know, with both feet, because there's things that they know they need to do for their own businesses and their own futures, but they can't really do it on their own, whether it's competitive pressure or what have you. But um, they're not opposed to being told by government that this is the new direction for the Well, part the of it, though, economy. is also, right, like on the infrastructure side in particular, it's like if some of this development is going to get subsidized by government, you know, the, the private sector is incentivized to sit around and sort of twiddle its thumbs until that government subsidy comes in and then it can provide provide the next layer of capital, right? So... And you're going to see that, you know, we'll see that with the infrastructure bill in the U.S., however that shakes out, right? Like investors, investment managers in particular, don't want to get ahead of government if there's like easy money to be made down the road. I'm an example of that because I just bought my first e-bike, my first electric bike, but I realized after the fact that I should have waited for the uh, U.S. spending bills to pass and become law because there'll be a big uh, subsidy for for e-bikes in the in the U.S. in the U.S. legislation. And so, just to Image's point, I should have uh, I, I got ahead of the I got ahead of government policy there, and uh, to my to my to my disadvantage. So you were too early to the e-bike trade. Exactly. Right. Well, well, consumers, just like investors, do respond to incentives. And so if governments can couldn't put in place the right incentives, they can create the right kind of behavior, both uh, from from investors and, and from consumers. And I think the other side of this, you know, I, I was at uh, I, I went to one of the, the protests and the marches and I uh, ended up going to a table that was staffed by some socialists from the International Socialist Alternative. And I got this flyer for them uh, and they were advertising their their upcoming uh, march saying fight for socialist change. Capitalism is killing the planet 
uh, and this has an image of flames uh, on top of the world. And and I think that that's the other piece of, of this is that uh, I do think that there is some uh, enlightened self-interest among some of the, the private capital folks that uh, if, if they don't take more serious action on this, then the governments uh, will perhaps change uh, around them and and, uh, and not be as friendly to the capitalist class as as they might like. Well, you're going all in on the revolution. Uh, no, I, I, I am all in for the transition that we need uh, to uh, to, to a inclusive and low carbon economy and one that works for people in the global south as well as for people in the global north. But I mean, that I mean, I think that is one of the inherent tensions that the environmental movement has had, right, that that it's its origins in large part come out of sort of an anti-capitalism, anti-globalism place. Um, and and now it is confronted by this reality that the only way we get what we need to get is through capital investment. So that there are parts of the environmental movement, and, and to be clear, like you know, capitalism does terrible things, and it's not just on the environmental side. It's like you know, what it does in human rights is you know, often arguably worse, right? So so there there are true and valid reasons for these protests and for these obje objections that, 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 you know, for all the fuzzy fiery rhetoric are not going away, but it makes the dialogue between the environmental movements and the capitalists and the technocrats who sort of have the hand, their hands on the levers and are the ones who have to get us there, you know, very strained in some regards. And, and in some ways means that the solutions that the sort of more extreme ends of the environmental movement bring to the table often are not very helpful from a finance and investment perspective and in some ways sort of are negative, right? And you sort of end up in this kind of nihilistic feedback loop. I'm less in for the revolution. I didn't get the poster. <laughs> but what, what does that have to do with uh, uh, inflation? Amazon? <laughs> Inflation is going to make things worse. It's going to, I mean, inflation is going to, it, so infl inflation complicates what was already and is already a complex process. It means, for example, you know, if we think about inflation in a very basic sense when we're talking about the environment and fossil fuels and commodities, right? It was relatively easy to make the argument to divest from fossil fuels over the last decade because we've seen low prices for for coal, oil, and natural gas, right? And there was a sort of, there seemed to be an alignment between the stranded asset thesis and this idea that these companies weren't doing very well, that the fossil fuel companies weren't doing very well, and that this, this whole sort of sector was shrinking. But of course, you know, energy companies, fossil fuel companies are still highly correlated to the to the price of commodities, specifically oil and natural gas. And so now that these prices are rising, you know, Exxon's up like 100% on the year or something, right? Like it's much harder to make the divestment case for these companies, even at a moment when, you know, COP26 is making clear that we need to transition away from fossil fuels, even at a moment when we're talking about financing the clean energy transition suddenly the energy market, I mean, people don't like coal is rising, you know, so, so these markets that looked unappealing are no longer are, are attractive, not because of anything really to do with climate change, but because of more short term macro trends. 
Can I ask a naive question, you guys, which is why when oil prices go up and even coal prices go up and natural gas prices go up, isn't the hue and cry that this is such a uh, injustice to the world's poor to be um, to be to be soaking them for for higher energy costs and everybody should get off of oil because it's obviously a retrogressive force in the world when when solar power is getting cheaper and cheaper. Yeah, because because I as an investor don't like losing money, right? Like I might like how far do and this is sort of why was it a mother portfolio theory people hate ESG, right? Like, if we take this to its logical conclusion, I'll have to not be, I'm not going to be able to invest in anything because of the negative impacts that it's going to have. So most investors are not willing to make an ethical argument. They're only willing to make a financial argument. So you have to be able to say, well, hurting the poor over the long term is going to be bad for sustainability, so don't do that. And that's not true for short-term commodity prices. And it's not true for the way that most investors invest. And the problem ends up being, well, then you lag the benchmark and then you have problems with compounding. So they're more worried about losing money and getting behind than they are making money and getting ahead. So it really had nothing to do with the price, the the sort of cost curve of the of the technology solutions to the to the climate problem or the or the energy problem, it had to do with just returns, uh, re- pure returns for investors. Is that yeah? And it's not just these returns in some ways; it's more portfolio construction, right? It's like how we put investment portfolios together, um, and the concern about yeah underperforming during, for example, a rising interest rate environment. But you bring up a good point, which is that you know what is different this time from say you know, 2008, which was the last time we had meaningful inflation, is that there are a lot more options out there for investors. And there's there's a lot more technology. I mean, Tesla only went public in 2010, and you could buy it for $4 a share, right? Like, the, the electric vehicle... I wish I had. Yeah, <laughs> you and me both. I was thinking that Tesla was overpriced at 2019 at $40 a share. So that went badly for me. Um that there are a lot more investment options out there today for the sort of E in ESG investing. It's not purely a case. And even like, you know, it's not just equities, right? Carbon credits, like European carbon credits, like through the roof. There are other investment opportunities that you, you can have. It's not just, oh, should you be buying oil or, oh, should you be buying fossil fuel companies? And if you believe the technology revolution is going to be sort of more intense sort of from a returns perspective than inflation, then you arguably could sort of position a portfolio to ride it out. So it, it, it's not, what I'm saying, it's not one dimensional. It's not either or. It creates a much more complex landscape. And that's true as well on the impact side in terms of rising assets, right? So if you're an impact investor and you're invested in natural resources, that's great and you're going to be able to profit from that. But at the same time, the price of goods and services are going up and that price is going to more negatively impact, you know, the poorest and most vulnerable in most communities. There's kind of this canard uh, going around. I assume it's a canard. You tell me whether I'm right or not, that uh, somehow ESG and impact is causing this inflationary trend when in fact, you know, many of these things, as we've said, whether it's solar or whatnot, or, and sort of technology enabled solutions are actually getting, making things much cheaper. 
Yeah, that Steve Schwartzman said that ESG is causing the price of oil to go up because people aren't lending, and that this is going to result in mass social disruption, as opposed to you know paying taxes, um, and and income inequality. So yeah, I mean there are, and you can see, look, I mean. There are arguments that say, well, in order for people to have to green their supply chain, they're going to have to pay more, and that's going to result in toilet paper being more expensive. But at the same time, we've seen countless examples of where one of the reasons private equity is so like rah-rah about ESG is that they see it as a way to save a cost savings, right? So if you switch to renewables, then you know, you're losing, using less energy. So I, I think it's sort of unfair and mean-spirited to, to lay inflation at the feet of ESG and impact. Um, I think, you know, there, there are discussions worth having within that. But over the long term, like, this is, you know, these are just markets and ESG investors are just investors and everyone has to learn how to sort of play with the hand you've got. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much, Imogen Rose-Smith. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, David. And thank you, David. Thank you both. That's going to do it for your Impact Briefing this week. More all day, every day at impactalpha.com. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily brief. Podcast listeners get $100 off their first year subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. Thanks for listening. And thanks to our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. I'm Brian Walsh, head of sustainability for the capital markets firm TPI Cap. Until next time, take good care.